Thank you very much. Um, leadership is one of the most uh, abused words today. There's something about leadership, and I know this is true also in North America, not only in Israel. Where I was speaking to here, to here? Uh, let's just see. This is off? I speak to this. Not, okay, I'll speak into this. That one, yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, I did already, yeah. Okay. To the, to the, to the mic. Okay. Is this okay? Come show me. Okay. So, in Israel, this great trend, Manigut. Everybody is speaking about Manigut, about leadership. There's academies for leadership, by the way, I, I even run one of them. There's the seminars about leadership. I get, I think, two telephones a day. Can you please speak to us about leadership? And I thought this was only an Israeli disease, about leadership. And there's so much leadership and lectures about leadership going on until I was invited to speak in Miami two years ago. And I was so excited that I was going to address the future American leadership. And I go there, and there's a great beach, Miami, this time of the year. And 200 young leaders from campuses all over America was organized by an important Zionistic organization. And then I was excited. I gave my, my, my speech, and then afterwards I asked one of them, what did you do to deserve to be a young leader? What did you do to deserve to be a part of this great group? He said to me, I signed up. <laughs> and that was the moment I understood that also you abused the word leadership <laughs> that if you want to track people to a weekend uh, this is this is for leaders <laughs> this is for young leaders and something happens to a word when you use it too much it loses its meaning words are like money if you, do, if you, if you create if you use them too much they're inflated and words have a tendency to be inflated they lose their their meaning. And it happens to words, I think it happened to the word Holocaust. It's been overused, stretched. It's more, it's, it's, uh, uh, here I'm speaking about something that happens in Israel. I don't know if, if, if in North America you overuse the word Holocaust. Everything is a Holocaust. I, mean, I, I was literally once in a Beit Cafe, in a coffee place in Tel Aviv, and someone was saying, HaCafe Shali Shoah. My coffee is terrible. It's, 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 it's Holocaust. So, so, when it, so, the word Zionism sometimes is overused. The word, and, like the word, and by the way, halacha is, is the brilliance of halacha. It's understood that, that words have a tendency to be abused, especially powerful words. They have a great impact. So, you don't have, so we're tempted to use them again and again because we want that impact, but we don't realize that the more we use them, the less impact they have. And we stretch the metaphor and it loses its meaning. Halacha understood this. So halacha protects certain words from overusage. The holier the word is, the less you're allowed to use it. The holiest word is the word that we cannot use. Therefore it's protected from the process of being abused and inflated. You know what that word is? No, I can't say So the word leadership, I feel, went through this process, but still, but the fact that, that it's overused doesn't mean that this word originally doesn't have any meaning. I want to offer a couple of thoughts about leadership 
And then I'll try to dive into the biblical text to try to understand how does the Bible understand leadership and what can it say to leaders today. And I was discussing this all day with, with, with the rabbi. And uh, he was reminding me that I'm going to address leaders of the community. And I hope what I'll say will be to some extent helpful. Many times, when you see a great speaker that captures the crowd, that's interesting, that knows what to say, many times they say, ah, he's a leader. We always confuse teaching for leading. But he's not a leader. He's a very good teacher. That doesn't mean he's a leader. But that happens because we don't understand what leadership is about. And here I'm speaking about what Weber calls charismatic leadership. Leadership as opposed to teaching, has a completely different purpose. Teaching is an interesting process and a possible process. We can even teach how to teach. It's very hard to teach how to lead. Teaching is about having a body of knowledge. I teach in Hebrew University. I teach the guy with the couplets, the Maimonides. What does that mean? What do I have that the students don't have? Why am I the teacher and not the students? At least they assume I have a body of knowledge that they, they don't have about Maimonides, about Rama, about the God. And then throughout the lesson, I'll be transforming my knowledge into words. They'll be listen, listening to these words and absorbing and turning into ideas in their mind. And if hypothetically we could compare the ideas I had in my mind before they turned into words, and the ideas that they have in their mind, that they transfer from my words. If you can compare minds, compare ideas, and if those ideas were similar, that means I managed to teach. By the way, some people say it's impossible. Some postmodernists say that communication is impossible because always the ideas I have in my mind, until they reach your mind, they hit your world of associations and your world of connotations, and we're never really communicating. I don't believe in that. I believe that we never have perfect communications. We never have perfect communication, but we could actually communicate and you could be either more clear or less clear, but it's possible to send out knowledge. And that miracle, when knowledge is accepted, that's the power of teaching. Leading is not about knowledge. Leading is not about injecting your knowledge into someone else's mind. Leading is about something else. It's not about knowledge. It's about, now I'm talking about the charismatic form of leading. Leading is about will. Can I inject new will into you? In the end of a great lecture, you know more. When you meet the leader, you want more. Leading is about will. And sometimes you can be a terrible speaker and you make everybody want to do something. You could be an amazing speaker and anybody has great observations after you speak. But they don't want more. Teaching is not leading. Charis- now, charismatic leading is about injecting your will into someone else's soul. For example, 
Max Weber offers a couple of observations here. Now, in Israel we have a lot of great examples because in Israel, when you're 19, you're 19 years old, you got into the, you went to the army when you're 18, 19, you already might have 25 soldiers that need to be obedient to you, that need to listen to you. That's a problem and a challenge we deal with in Israel. Because suddenly you're so young and you have so much power. And can our young, amazing Israelis deal with so much power without it corrupting? Because power corrupts. And absolute power, the whole corrupts absolutely. So if I'm a commander and I'm telling my soldiers, listen, now you have to, you need to run up this hill. And they all start running and come back. Was that an act of leadership? Well, this is not what we call charismatic leadership. This is formal leadership. Why is that? Because they didn't, I didn't inject will into them to run. They're not running because they want to run. They're running, why? Because I want them to run. They're surrendering their will to my will. They're, submit, they're surrendering to my authority. There was a charismatic command, what would I do? I wouldn't say, you should run up, you see. I would try to make them somehow charm them to run up this hill. And then what would happen? When they run up the hill, they don't run up the hill because I want them to run. Why are they running now? Because they want to run. That is leadership. Now leadership is a miracle. Charisma in Greek is matnata elin. It's a present of the gods. We can teach how to teach. We can teach how to lead. We can teach how to transmit information. We can teach how to transmit will. That's not something, it's charisma, it's a gift from the gods. In Greek. But there are many thinkers throughout the generations that believe that maybe you could teach charisma. And what is charisma about? Charisma is about, as one thinker put it, charisma, you could actually inject your will into someone else's soul. You can make him want more. And how do you do that? Well, it's not only about being clear and convincing. Charisma is about, now this is an interesting theory, that will has a tendency to be like water. It's fluid. And whoever has a very weak will, there's a tendency for powerful will to be injected into weak will. I'll try, I want to make a broader point. I'll go back to this in a second. Theodore Herzl, in the end of the 19th century, had this crazy vision of a Jewish state. He tried to convince anyone that it's possible. And one day, he writes in his personal diary, famous line, in Turtu, if you will it, Ein Zohagada. How do you say Ein Zohagada? It's not a what? It's not a fairy tale. If you will it, it's not a fairy tale. Herta said, our ability to create, to do the, make the impossible possible, to create a Jewish state, is not dependent, 
It's not dependent. It didn't reduce at all if we'll be smart enough. Not if we'll be powerful enough. He said if we'll want it enough, it will happen. Now, Theodor Herzl said this before the 20th century. The only difference between Herzl and us is that Herzl believed this was true. We know this to be true. And the reason why we know that the most powerful force in history is not our power, not our wisdom, if you are Aristotelians, but our will is because we are graduates of the 20th century. Now, what did we learn from the 20th century? I'd like to offer a reading of something great that we learned in the 20th century. And I want just to ask one thing from the crowd. I'm going to say some things, but please don't guess if I'm a right-winger or a left-winger. At least in Israel, we're obsessive with that, oh, Yemeni, lo, lo, smolani. In the 20th century, we learned that when you conquer another nation, and I, this is why it might sound actual, but when you conquer another nation, you'll always lose. The Russians tried to conquer and hold on to Afghanistan. The Afghanis rebelled against Russia. They won. America didn't succeed in Vietnam. Russia doesn't succeed in Chechnya. French didn't succeed in Algeria. And you ask why? Why? Because Russia, America, France were much more powerful than Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Algeria. The asymmetry of power is way, way towards these empires. So how did the locals win them? Well, if you think about it, now, in France, and in, America, and in Russia, they said, well, if there's problems, we use more power. Because that's where our advantage is. We're more powerful. But here's the problem. The French killed over a million Algerians, and the Algerians didn't give up. The Algerians killed 12,000 French soldiers, and the French decided, let's get out of here. Same thing happened in Afghanistan. Same thing happened in Vietnam. Because whoever wants more is willing to suffer more, therefore he will win. If there's something we learned in the 20th, 20th century, then it's true that there's asymmetry in power. But there's also asymmetry in will. And an Algerian will always want Algeria more than a French guy, Frenchman, by definition. And someone from Afghanistan will always want Afghanistan more than the Russian, by definition. And there's something we learned in the 20th century and there's asymmetry in power, balanced by asymmetry in will. We didn't know this before the 20th century. Now we know. Will is more powerful than power. Whoever wants more, wins. By the way, if we do try now to try to understand our conflict with the Palestinians, whoever wants more will win. And if we see ourselves as imperialists entering someone else's home and they're fighting for their own home, we will lose. But if we see it as this is our home and they see it as their home, so our wills are balanced. And then what will happen? Who will win? If wills are balanced, so who will win? Yes, but still we're more powerful, so then it goes back to that game. Because if we see ourselves as intruders, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely lose. But if we see ourselves, if it's two nations fighting on their own home, then wills are balanced, then, then we still have better things. So I, I, that's why I say, well, uh, 
the, our hundred years' work with, with, with the Arab world will be won not in the battlefields, but in the schools, in yeshivot, in Batei Midrash, where we develop national will. I say this, and I want to go back. This is the between us and Theodore Herzl. Herzl believed that the most powerful force in history is will. Today we know, as graduates of the 21st century, that who wills, wins. And this takes me back to leadership. Leadership is about making people want more. And since leaders touch what's, what determines history is not wisdom, it's not knowledge, it's not physical power, but it's the power of will. After knowing this, we, we understand that leadership is needed a lot more. So how do you promote leadership? How do you promote it? Is it really just a gift of the gods? Either you got it or you don't. How do you promote leadership? Well, there are many thinkers throughout the generations who then think like the Greeks. Actually, there is such a thing as leadership. And leadership is about people who manage to promote will or people that themselves want a lot. In other words, if you're in a room and there's 15 people in the room and there's an art and, and they don't know what to do. In the end, everybody will want what the most, the, the person in the room wants most. If, you have a, if there's somebody that wants it a lot and the rest wants something else but their will is very weak in the end, powerful will will be injected into weak will. If this is true, so how do we create leadership? How do I make other people want what I want? How do I do that? By deepening my own will. The more I'll want it, the more I'll be able to make other people want it. I know the term in English, how do you say you... you, when you, 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 you sweep people into your own will. What? Gather. Gather. What? And if this is true, so maybe if the most powerful force in history is will, and the more we want, the more reality will change, the more other will will change. So, so maybe prayers do change the world. <laughs> I want to explain why. There's a great reading. One of the greatest theologians in the 20th century, Arav Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Kuk. Arav Kuk. Charles and Kevin, what do, what do prayers do? What happens when you pray? Does God listen? Because what is prayers? Prayers is me expressing my deepest wills. I'm expressing what I want. And the thing is, when you express what you want, you want it more. The more I articulate my will, articulating my will, 
deepens my will. It creates a stronger will. I want it more now. Now we all know this from life. When I talk about something that I want, I want it more. Sometimes the relationship between language and will or opposite is not only because I want it, I talk about it, but because I talk about it, I really, really want it. So if praying makes my will stronger, I articulate what I want. And if strong will has a tendency to expand, and if expanding will changes history, so if you think about it, prayers do change the world. One reading would be because God is listening to your will. The second reading would be it's because you're listening. Because it expands your will. It expands your ability to transmit. And, and powerful will does change. And that's the most powerful force in history. When we get together as a community to, to, to say out loud what we want to happen in the world. We want Haiti to overcome the catastrophe. The more we'll see it, the more we'll want it, the more we'll want it, the more we'll do for it, the more we'll, we'll, we'll donate for it. It's, so expressing your will expands your will and your will leads to action and actions change the world. When you don't express your will, your will have a tendency to be weakened. When it's weak, it doesn't lead to action. And therefore, and therefore, a world of prayer, a world where we dare to say out loud our, our deepest will, is a world of tikkun olam. Many times people say, I don't want to pray, I want to be out there. But maybe praying is a part of being out there. Now after saying all this, that leadership is about empowering our own will, for them to be to spread out and, 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 and move other people to wants. And in the end, this will be the force that will repair this, the world. The king will not. I'm saying this, I have to say, that it seems like all great leaders of the 20th century had great, powerful will. I want to compare the model of leadership that was building till now to the biblical model. I was out, till now trying to understand what is charisma about. It's about wanting you to want, about leading you to want, and since wanting is the most powerful force in history, leaders can really, what is this trivial, change the world. But, and, but when we look at leaders, Usually, there's another component to it. They also know how to express it. They, they want it. Nothing can stand in front of their will. They want to express what they want. They believe in their ability to achieve things. Look at Winston Churchill. Look at Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And at the same time, look at the, the other side. Look at leaders like Stalin. They all share. Either they lead to terrible places or the great places. They share same qualities. One quality is that they believe in their ability to change. A second quality is they believe in the cause that they want that is the end cause of their change. And usually they also have the ability to express with words. They, they know how to, they are to speak. They know the art of oratory. So if you know what you want to change and you believe in your ability to change and you can express it, if you have those three criteria, like Winston Churchill, 
then you can change the world. Now, now, now in light of this model, this model of three criteria, I'd like to take a good look on biblical leaders. And obviously the greatest leader of the Bible is, is Moshe. Moshe Rabbeinu, Rabbeinu, you know what Rabbeinu means? You know what Rabbi means in Hebrew? It means leader. Moshe Rabbeinu is Moshe. Rab is, 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 um, is authority. Moshe Rabbeinu is Moshe, our leader. Manigim. And he's the manig of all generations. And of many religions. Yes, what was his qualities of leadership? Was he charismatic? Did he believe in his cause? Did he believe in his ability to lead all the three classic criteria of leadership? Well, what's the first thing you know about Moshe Rabbeinu? When God appears to Moses in the burning bush, maybe we should open that chapter. It's, it's um, Shmot Dalit, uh, Exodus 4. Actually, it begins Exodus 3. Yeah, a three, three twenty, three twenty-nine. What? What? Uh, yeah, three, three, no, three twenty-nine, verse eleven. God says to Moses, "Why don't you go lead Israel?" What does Moses say? Verse eleven. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? So Moshe's first impulse is that I am not worthy and we usually we see this as modesty, right? He's modest. We like that quality. But it seems like this is more than modesty. If we'll go to chapter 4, verse 1, we see this is not modesty. But Moses spoke up and said, What if they do not believe me? And do not listen to me? Moses said, No one will believe me. Moshe, it's not that he doesn't want to lead because he believes he's not worthy, he's modest. He doesn't want to lead. Why? Because he doesn't think he's capable of leading. He doesn't think anyone will actually believe him or let alone understand him. And then at the end, as you all know, in the end Moshe tells God, I don't believe in myself. Why? Because I don't know how to talk. Lo ish dvarim anochi. I'm not a man of words. Kvat pe. What does kvat pe mean? He's heavy in his mouth. 
By the way, just an interesting observation. Moshe didn't want to lead Israel because he was kvate, he was heavy in his mouth. Why did Pharaoh say no? What did the Torah say? He was kvatlev. Moshe didn't want to leave because his mouth was heavy. Pharaoh didn't want to let, let him lead because his heart was heavy. Bali, why did he go down to Egypt in the first place? It was very he- heavy <laughs> down there in Egypt. If we come back, it seems like Moses is not just modest. He doesn't believe in his ability to lead. And this will appear in many stations throughout his career. Every time there's problems, he won't believe, he doesn't believe he can do it. But I think it's even more than that. If we see, if we move to chapter, chapter 5. something very simple. Test them, go into Pharaoh's office and give him the following monologue. Say to him, B'ni B'chor Yisrael, Israel is a firstborn. Shtach et amir ve'yavduni, let my people go and they'll worship me. V'yimayel et arashadach et amir, if you'll say no, hinani yoreget b'nicha b'chorecha, I will kill your firstborn. Okay, this is what God asks Moses to do when he walks into Pharaoh's office. Tell him, God said to let my firstborn go, or else what will I do? I will kill your firstborn. It sounds a little bit like, you know, like gangsters. You let my firstborn go, Israel, or else I will kill your firstborn. And Moses is supposed to walk in to Pharaoh's office and threaten to kill Pharaoh's firstborn. Now will Moses do this? Actually, what he does, if you look at chapter 5, verse 3, he says, The God of the Hebrews revealed himself to us. We were asked to go to the desert for three days. We'll sacrifice to God. What does what Moses do when he walks into Pharaoh's office? He doesn't threaten Pharaoh that if you'll say no, God will kill your firstborn. What does he say then? Please let us go, because if he won't go, what will happen? He'll attack, he'll attack us. We'll have a disease. Something bad will happen to us. Moshe, instead of threatening Pharaoh, what is he doing? He's threatening himself. Obviously Moshe is more afraid of Pharaoh than he's afraid of God. And what happens when Pharaoh says no? Pharaoh says, um, I, I don't agree. <laughs> he says to him, I don't know who God is. 
גם את ישראל לא שולח ענק על אגו. Moses is where all models fail. 
Moses, the greatest leader of all time, fossil leadership. Moses, the greatest leader of all times, is a person that lacks any characteristics of a leader. So here's the big question, and this, this is a question we must be asking. How is it possible that with no charisma, with no belief in your capabilities, with no belief in the object, with no ability to transmit your will, how can you lead a people? How is it possible that leadership is possible without the qualities of leadership? But the truth is, there are no surprises. I, mean, I wish I could stand here in front of me and say, you know what, he managed to lead with no leadership skills. But you know what the truth is? He didn't manage to lead. The people of Israel rebelled against them from day one. They never, never listened to him. And as Moses summarized his biography, after 40 years, he summarizes tragically, Mamrim ha'item et Hashem Eloichem. You were rebels. Miyom da'atiyatchem. In other words, you've never listened to me. There are no surprises in this story in the Bible. Moses lacked the ability to lead and he actually didn't manage to lead. So you ask yourself, what's going on here? Why is the ultimate leader not a leader? And, but maybe this is leading the way to a greater paradox. Because Moses had no charisma and didn't manage to lead. is the greatest leader of all times. Moses didn't manage to lead his generation, but he led all the generations. He failed in his generation, but he succeeded throughout the generations. He was the leader of Jewish history, from the first temple, second temple, through the crusades, through all, everything that happened to us. We follow the law of Moses, the words of Moses. The leader of the generations is not the leader of his own generation, and maybe this is the critique of the Bible and charisma. Maybe the Bible is not promoting charisma. Maybe the Bible is attacking charisma, and this is the reading I'd like to offer. There's two problems with charisma. One problem with charisma is that charisma actually blocks your long-term impact. Because when I leave using the charm of my personality, and anybody is moved by my presence, so actually my ability to lead is short-term. Why? Because if people are moved by my presence, and people moving and being motivated is dependent on my presence, so what does that mean? When I'm not present, they're not going to be, they're not going to move. Paradoxically, the charisma limits itself. It limits the impact of a leader to its presence. When he's not there, so his impact is not there anymore. Moses had no charisma. He couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't move his generation, but he moves all generations because what forced history 
wasn't the power of his personality. A second problem with charisma, I, before I said charisma, we always mistake between teaching and leading. There's another mistake we make between educating and leading. Socrates taught us what educating is about. Educating, Socrates writes, actually Plato writes for Socrates, that Socrates' job was always, he inherited his mother's job. What was Socrates' mother's job? She was a meyaledit. How do you say she was? Meyaledit. No, no, not raising children. Uh, she gives birth. A midwife. Thanks. Socrates' mom was a midwife. Socrates says, I inherited her job because I'm an educator. Hmm. My mom knew how to give birth to bodies. I give birth to souls. Because what an educator does, says Socrates, he talks to people and he enables them to develop what they think and what they want. That's the difference between a leader and an educator. A leader injects his will into the soul of people. An educator enables people to find their will, to discover their own will. Charisma is anti-education. It's about you wanting what I want. Education is about you exposing what and finding what you want. Rabbi Nachman has a great, great story about a person. He has two different stories about leadership. One story is, that, is he's saying, you know, Rabbi Nachman, he's very big about the figure of the tzaddik, of the guru. And he says, you, every, every person needs to find a tzaddik and go to him and see his face. There's something in his face. And there's two versions of Rabbi Nachman Ibrahim. One vision is, you go to see his face because he, there's light from the Tadik's face. There's something in his energy that you need to take his energy from him. That is the charismatic model. But in the second place, Rabbi Nachman says, but when you go and you see his face, his face is like a, like a mirror. And I think what he's saying is, you don't go to the Tadik to, to get the Tadik's energy. You go to the tzaddik because you look at the face and you see a mirror, meaning you find your own face. You find your own energy. You find your own will. If it's the light of the tzaddik, that's charisma. If it's a mirror, you find your own will, that's education. But towards anti we, we confuse teaching and leading, we also confuse educating and leading. The Torah is anti-charisma because the Torah is pro-education. And if we think about it again, this double critique of charisma. The Torah has a reason, a theological reason why it attacks charisma. Why a role model of a leader is an anti-leader. Why the leader of generations couldn't lead his generation. And that maybe is because in the biblical world, we know all the cultures that the Torah is dealing with. And those cultures were cultures that admired their kings. The Babylonians admired their kings. The Egyptians admired their kings. They were these 
gigantic human beings and they thought they were gods. Nebuchadnezzar was a god. Sanherib was a god. Pharaoh was a god. In ancient pagan tradition, the tradition was the attempt to deify the political forces. They believed they had no faults, that they were perfect. The same thing, by the way, happened to the, Catholic, to the Christian tradition where the leader was deified. When the Bible presents the leader as an anti-leader, they're saying, this is a person, they're separating between the person and the message. This is a person that has a message. Because in the pagan world, the kings and priests aren't people that have a message. The people themselves are the message. Moses is not a person that is charisma and trying personality. He and his personality is hiding the message. He has a message. Or like a great Catholic researcher, writes what happens in 80 years to the figure of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes to the people and says, I have a, mi- a message. I have something to say. I have a message. After 80 years, what happens? He becomes the message. When he's deified. He becomes the message. Moses cannot become the message. Moses Moses doesn't hide the message. And maybe, and yes, so what is the message? Well, maybe this is the message. The Bible fights the, the pagan world that admires people, that believes that they are perfect. The people aren't the message. The people might have a message. And the separation between the medium and the man. Between the mess, sorry, the message and the medium. Today we like to say that the message is the medium, right? Well, in the pagan world, the message is the person. And we find this attack on the pagan world, not only through the paradox of a leader with anti-charisma. We actually find this attack our tendency to see perfect people and to idealize people and to absolutely admire people. We see it throughout the Bible. What the Bible does by pointing out the weaknesses of its greatest figures like David, like Moses, like Shlomo, everyone besides everyone besides Job. What the Bible does by pointing out the weaknesses of its own figures it's flattering the myth of perfect heroes. A graduate of Bible cannot believe that there are perfect human beings because if Moses could sin anyone could sin. If David could fall anyone could fall. The Bible blocks our ability of believing in human perfection. And by doing this, this is a very powerful act of ecoloclasm, which is Latin for what Abraham did when he broke all the, the, um, the idols. So the Bible is a gigantic literary attempt to break, to destroy idols, to destroy our possibility, our psychological possibility of believing that there are perfect human gods out there. Because if David could sin and Moses could sin, anyone can sin. The Bible slaughters the myth of the myth. 
But I think it does more than that, the Bible. The Bible doesn't only slaughter the myth of perfect people. Because it's more complicated than that. It slaughters the idea that David the king is perfect. But it still tells us to admire David. It tells us about all the weaknesses of Moses, but it tells us to follow Moses. By at the same time, telling us they're not perfect, and at the same time telling us to admire them, the Bible is training us to admire imperfection. To admire what's not perfect. And to celebrate imperfection. And I want, to think of, I want to think of the meaning of the Bible trying to enable us to celebrate imperfection. In the Torah it says, V'achalta v'savato v'rachta. You eat, and you're full, you're satisfied, and you bless God. Talmud said, how much do you need to eat in order to bless God? Talmud says, kazait or kabaita, like an olive or like, a, or like, a, or like an egg. Now, has any of you ever got full from eating <laughs> an olive or an egg? Think what the Talmud is saying. Even when you're not full, you celebrate it. Even when it's not perfect. Even when it's imperfect. Even when you're not absolutely satisfied. You celebrate it. The Bible is training us to celebrate a world that's not perfect. And, here's, and these are thoughts I'll, I want to come to back, back to in the end. I want to think about the educational power of imperfect leaders, of David being imperfect, of Moses being an anti-leader that's a leader, of these biblical walking paradoxes. Nomi Wolf, one of the greatest feminists of our times, writes an important book, The Myth of Beauty. Have any of you read this book? You could fake it. It's a great book, but actually I love it when the crowd doesn't read a book that I read. Because then I can say whatever I want. <laughs> so she writes this amazing book, The Myth of Beauty, and she, said, well, she, and she, she makes a very powerful argument that today, in a world where beauty is constantly represented through consumerism, where every, when you walk in the street, you see the perfect beauty out there. On the shlatim, on the billboards, when I open TV, I see beautiful models. When I open the newspaper, I see they're always there. So she claims, her first claim is that they're always the same model. I mean, they look differently, but they're actually all the same. It's always the same beauty. And by the way, the represented beauty, which by the way, it's inflated the amount that it's represented, it's always the same beauty, and those beautiful women out there that we see on the billboards don't look like anyone, including not the model Excluding out the model itself. And one of the impacts of the inflation representation of beauty is that this is an attempt to create, it, it unites our tastes. In the end, we all think of beauty as, as one objective idea of beauty. It's the united taste of America. <laughs> but that's more than uniting our tastes. There's more than uniting our tastes. She claims, and this is a very powerful argument, 
that this inflated representation of beauty, the perfect beauty, makes us all feel ugly. Because when that is what's beautiful, and that beauty is not accessible, every time I see someone down the street, I always experience the unbridgeable gap between the way we look and the way beauty looks like. And that gap makes us all feel ugly. And there's some, some people make a lot of money from the fact that we feel ugly. That creates consumerism. And by the way, many, many diseases of modern condition, like anorexia, eating disorders. By the way, she says, women are more ugly than men today. Now, I don't want to get in trouble with anybody for saying this, because Nomi Wolf, actually, she's a radical feminist. Nomi Wolf is saying this. Why is that? Because men are less represented than women. So we don't have, like, we have, there are men models, actually, one is running for... <laughs> Maybe not running anymore, I don't know, is there any chadasot? <laughs> don't tell them I said it. <laughs> and we always experience an aesthetic gap between us and the perfect beauty. Now, when I read down, I looked at it, strong fancy, this is, she's making a very Nietzschean claim here. What's the Nietzschean claim? Nietzsche says, asks a very similar question. When I read the New Testament, what happens to me? When I read about these perfect human beings, these perfect heroes, perfect leaders, they never sin. They're always great. Just like the world of consumerism creates a myth of perfect beauty, sometimes the world of religion creates the myth of perfect personality. So Nietzsche says what happens to every reader of the New Testament, to every, to every, every reader, every consumer of religious pieces, what happens is you always experience the ethical gap between you and the perfect personality. And therefore you always feel like a sinner. I'm never so perfect. I always feel frustrated. What consumerism do, does to our self-esteem as far as the way we look, religion does to our self-esteem as the, the, as the way we see ourselves ethically, not aesthetically. We experience the ethical gap between us and our heroes. That's a perfect models or perfect personalities do to us. They destroy our self-esteem. We stop believing in ourselves. But here's my question. Klein speaks about consumerism. Nietzsche speaks about the perfect figures that religion presents. But what happens to us when we read the Bible? <laughs> what happens to us when we read about David and Solomon, Moses, and the Bible exposes their sins and their weaknesses and points them out and instructs us to still admire them. What happens to us when we meet that? We don't feel that unbridgeable gap anymore. We don't feel the Bible doesn't destroy our self-esteem. It's a book that doesn't empty us from the feeling of meaning. It doesn't 
empty our lives for meaning. It injects meaning because we feel like we're represented in the Bible. The Bible is about us. The Bible doesn't... The Bible represents imperfection. I mean, the alternative... Like a biblical world of consumerism means, you know, um, advertisements with not good looking people. <laughs> now, this is a world that I want, I want to try to... What, the world of imperfect leaders and celebrating a world that's not perfect. How does that impact our lives? I want to say one um, comment on education and second comment about leadership. A world that says, and Bobby Modernity started to say this towards the end, that only perfection is celebrated. Perfect beauty, perfect ethics. Only perfection is meaningful. If it's not perfect, it lost all meaning. A world that plays the game of all or nothing. The world that the Bible attacks. That pagan impulse. This is Plato's impulse. This is a very common impulse. That only what's perfect is worthy. That's a world where you can't really learn. Because in order to learn in the progress, you have to be not afraid to make mistakes. You constantly demand perfection. You're terrified for mistakes, and if you can't, if you're terrified for mistakes, you don't, you never try. My best example is my daughters. My two daughters, Avital and Shiri, they're twins, and they're amazing. They're really amazing. My wife sent me a picture today, and they're learning to walk now. Now, I'm sure you guys all saw this a million times with your own kids, but let me enjoy this for a minute. The way Avital tries to walk, she holds the chair, and she goes, and, and she starts, you know, and they always fall. And I think Avital and Shiri fell already 3,000 times. Now what would happen if you would be telling them only perfect counts? If you, you're not allowed to make mistakes because that's not perfect. Only perfect counts, therefore we've been un... If, or what, so if they won't be willing to fall, or imagine a world where little kids were terrified of making mistakes and of falling like adults. I assume they'd try to walk once, they'd fall. They'd try to walk again, they'd fall. And then they'd come to a, a very logical conclusion that we probably can't walk. Because if they share the fear that we fear of failure, after three or four times falling, they say, okay, we don't want this anymore. It's probably impossible to walk. Because a world that demands perfection creates a climate that has no tolerance for mistakes and a world with no tolerance for mistakes destroys our ability to dare and therefore to learn. But it's a great mazal that no one taught my daughters yet that mistakes are bad and that we demand perfection. I actually imagine an opposite world. A world where grown-ups, not a world where 
child have the fear of failure of grown-ups. Imagine a world where grown-ups have the lack of fear of failure of little children. When you fail and it doesn't bother you and you fail again and it doesn't bother you and for that will be a world where we continue learning where growth doesn't stop. The founders of Google understood this by the way. Google is an empire because the founders of Google constantly tell the workers make mistakes. That's where knowledge comes from. Make mistakes and in many ways a world that promotes perfect leaders as a world that creates a kind with no tolerance for mistake, therefore it is a world with no growth. A biblical world that says that imperfection, our leaders are imperfect and we still admire them. That celebrates the possibility of imperfection. Is a world that has a lot of kind for mistakes. David made terrible mistakes. We still admire him. He still gets second chances. This is a world not of perfect leadership, but of great education. It's a world where we dare to make mistakes, therefore it's possible to grow. I want to share with you something that, about Israeli mentality, but I'm sure it's human mentality, but it's very powerful in Israel. Israelis never make mistakes. Israelis don't make mistakes. If you admit, if you change your mind, what happens if you change my mind? What does that mean? That I'm weak. You don't change your mind. You, even after things went wrong, you still prove that you were right from the beginning. Because for some reason, we adopted a model that you always have to be perfect. Therefore, I can't make mistakes. Therefore, my ability to learn is blocked. That's the Christian model, the Plato's model, modernity's model. The Bible offers an alternative model. A model where even when it's imperfect, it still counts. It creates a climate where you're allowed to make mistakes, therefore, therefore, you could learn. And I think creating a society, creating a community that grows, creating a community that's enabled to be reflective and to change and to grow, the key to that community is not to expect perfection. A world, a biblical world, where we celebrate imperfection is a world that creates a climate that enables growth. And the only way to do that is through leadership. If leaders are willing to make mistakes and admit that they made mistakes, that frees, that, 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 that frees the entire community. If the leader is willing, you know, in Hebrew, we say shalom to each other. What does shalom mean? Shalom means, shal- it means perfection. There, and I'm blessing you with shalom means I don't think you're perfect. I'm saying you should be perfect. That means you're not perfect. Every time Jews meet, we insult each other. Shalom, you should be perfect. Means you're not. Shalom. And obviously the immediate response would be shalom to you too. You're not perfect. No, you're not perfect. By the way, Shabbat Shalom is the only time we say something could be perfect. It's not us, it's the Shabbat. We're not perfect. And our language celebrates imperfection. The Rav Kook, which I quote, I'll quote again, 
says that only God is perfect. Le'elohim ha'shlemut. Le'bnei adam hi'shtalmut. Human beings are in a process of perfection. They are not perfect. And if I said that any community, community, that leaders are willing to admit that they are not perfect, that they make mistakes, that they change their minds, is a community that creates a climate for people to constantly change their minds and therefore grow? Well, the first community in the world that's founded on leaders that admit that they made mistakes is, is the Jewish community. The pagan world presented leaders that don't make mistakes. The first time in history where tradition is led by leaders that made mistakes is Judaism. And that's why this is a, this is a tradition that promotes progress, that promotes learning. Because our leaders didn't rob us from our sense of humanity and from a legitimacy to fall and to fail and to make mistakes. Hey, this is the kind of leadership that a community and that a tradition that doesn't want to freeze but wants to grow. The kind of leadership is biblical leadership. And I want to make one last comment and then we'll open this for questions. When Today, in a, in a very cynical world, it's embarrassing to admire. I know the students in university, students, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm head of, of, of an academy that tries to promote new type of leadership in Israel. It's called Ein Prat. People are embarrassed to admire. Now, why are they embarrassed to admire? Because what does it say about me if I'm admired? People call you your groupie. You know that term? Your groupie. What does it say about you if you admire? It says that you're weak. It says that you need somebody strong. It says that you, you have no sense. You have no ability to criticize. It means says that you're not independent. It says that you're small. And this is... So in a world that, that is cynical towards the possibility of admiration. But there's a problem. In a world with no admiration, there's a world with no greatness and aspiring for greatness and inspiration. And here's what I think happened in the 20th century. But there are the presented perfect leaders. Churchill, Roosevelt, and also the bad guys. The bad guys were great at this. The bad guys were great at creating Hitlers and Stalins and Mussolinis, perfect leaders that, we admi- that they admired. Second half of the 20th century, we have an allergic reaction to modernity. We enter postmodernism. Allergic reaction to a world of Stalins and of Hitlers and of Mussolinis and, and perfect people. The concept of perfection is, alarms us and therefore we don't admire anymore. Anyone who admires, that must mean that he believes that there are perfect people out there. So we moved from a world where we admire perfection to a world where we understand there is no perfection, therefore there is no admiration. The Bible is a third model. The figures aren't perfect, but we still admire them. You think about it, postmodernism shares with modernism the same impulse. Only perfect is worthy of admiration. Since no one's perfect, so no one is worth admiring. The Bible tries to break this all-or-nothing game, this dichotomy. It says, no, no, 
Our heroes aren't perfect. And we admire them. And maybe this is an admiration that has a different impact. Because we admire the perfect, that's an admiration that shrinks your personality. Because you lose your ability to think for yourself. But you admire people that you know that aren't perfect. Doesn't shrink you, that grows you. You don't lose your sense of criticism, of, of criticism. You don't lose your independence. You understand that they can make mistakes. You understand that they might be wrong. But at the same time, you can have inspiration. And strive to be greater. The Bible has a lot to offer to our all-or-nothing world. A world where everything is perfect and you admire, or nothing is perfect and you don't admire and you're cynical. A third model. A third paradigm. And I think our world needs a third paradigm. So we can be inspired without the fear of regressing to fascism again. So we can believe in greatness without the fear of losing our sense of independence. And the Bible offers our world this third paradigm. A paradigm that enables us to grow not because our leaders shrink us but because in their imperfect way they inspire us. Okay? Adkan. Um, can you connect what you just said to what we do here at the temple? I need more words. Can you please connect? <laughs> please connect. Uh, in other words, you talk a lot about um, imperfection, that the Torah teaches us, the Bible teaches us, that the world is imperfect, that our leaders are imperfect, that Moshe Rabbeinu is an, you know, is an anti-leader leader, right? Um, so that's really helpful to me anyway, right? So now the question is, how does that insight uh, help our being effective in this context, right? I, I always, you're talking, I think, of a lot of resonances, right, for example, right? So we have our own version of perfect that we'll never have here. Um, 1,200, right? 1,200 is perfect. And that's 1,200 members, and we're never at 1,200, and we think to be going down like one or two units. Uh, and so it's not perfect, but it's still good. Um, we have this goal of Bormans, families of Bormans, families, coming back to the gap of the Bormans, which almost never happens. It happens very seldom, with the exception of the rule. Right? Usually, the Bormans was there, they love us, headless, 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 and you don't see them for six That's the rule, not that they come back next week. Right? So, um, we have this dream that in the shul of, of 3,000 souls, we'd get more than 200 on a Saturday morning if there's no more of mitzvah, but that doesn't happen either. Uh, the reality is always imperfect, right? So my question is, how does this imperfect part, which uh, gives us imperfect role models, help us create a world more perfect than our imperfect temple? Well, I think you've said it, Wes. I'll, I'll try to... I, there's... The problem, you see, there, there's, some people have a problem that, they, that their first girlfriend was perfect. Okay? And then they can never get married. Because they have this image, usually memory creates perfection. In the past, everything was perfect. The greatest, the reason why we hope for a perfect future is because we have an imagination of a perfect past. And that perfect ex-girlfriend 
which never really existed. She's always, the memory, you know, inflates it and expands it. And I always compare any of my girlfriends to my imaginary ex-girlfriend. And then I can't get married. And my ability to get married, and my ability to live in this reality, is accepting the fact that perfection is not accessible. And I think what you're saying is that when a community sets, you know, believes that, that, that perfection is accessible, so community on the long run burns out. Burns out. And, and the Bible, you, you, you'd expect the Bible to promote perfection. Speak about, you know, the perfect country and the perfect society and the perfect, and the perfect figures. But the Bible destroys its own expectation. And I think part of what the Bible does, it enables us to accept our lives. I told, I just want to say one, one more comment. Me and Wes had an amazing discussion today. This summer I was I visiting in Philadelphia. In, uh, in, in Penn University, it was, a, it was a, kind of a conference there. And I went to visit in the Constitution Place Museum. And even though I read a couple of times the American Constitution, suddenly it hit me. I couldn't believe it. The American Constitution is written that your fantasy is to create a more perfect union. Now, it suddenly hit me was the difference between the foundation story of America and of Israel. Our heroes, our founding fathers, didn't come to Israel to create a more perfect union. They came to create the perfect union. The founders of the Aliyah, Shniyah, the Rav Kook, all these great Chada'am. They were utopian. They wanted to create the perfect union. Here you want to create a more perfect union. I think America is more biblical than Israel. A more perfect union. Now here's a problem. When you expect everything to be perfect, and it's not, so you don't want it anymore. Everybody is not satisfied in Israel. Actually, self-criticism is a national sport in Israel. And I think one of the reasons of this is because our myth is a myth of perfection. America is a myth of a more perfect union. Meaning I measure my success not compared to a perfect ideal, my perfect ex-girlfriend, but to what I had yesterday. A more perfect union. And I think this is very, very biblical. This notion of a more perfect union. And not a, per- a notion of the perfect union. And if I apply this on your community, let's not think about the perfect community, but a more perfect community. That would be more American, but also more biblical. Right. Yes? So you yourself, first of all, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. What did we learn from the fact that the leader didn't get there? And if you think, this is very biblical. 
that biblical heroes never fulfill their life's purpose. Think about it. David was also left out of his promised land. What happened to David? What was his life's dream? To build a temple. He was left out of it. They live unfulfilled lives. And they are still our heroes. Trying to say that what gives meaning and significance to our lives aren't the objectives that we achieve, but the paths we walk on. Here, I'd like to say the world is divided into two paradigms. One paradigm is, I know this in Hebrew, and I'll, I'll try to be accurate. There's a world of Ya'adim, of, of, of a goal-oriented world, goal-oriented, where I judged what you did only through the question is, what goals did you achieve? And there is a world, not of Ya'adim, but of Dvachim. Meaning, I judge what you did in your life, not by the goals you achieved, but what paths did you walk you know the word Tao, the most powerful word in the ancient Chinese tradition, the Tao, or the Tao. Ever hear this tradition? The Tao. Tao, a translation of the Tao, Tao is derich, it's the way. It's the way. The key word in Islam is Sharia. What is Sharia? It's derich, it's the way. It's Tao. The key word in Judaism, if there's one organizing category, what is it? It's halacha. What is halacha? It's lehalech baderech. Seven times God revealed Himself to Abraham. Four times He told him, "Start walking." Lech lecha me'artzecha, lech lecha eretz amuriyah. He talech lefanai ve'yetamim. Kum ve'hitalech ba'aret. Halacha is man's reaction to God's call to walk, to be on the way. And in order to promote the theology of way, we're saying that our heroes are people, that they are heroes not because they didn't achieve goals. David and Moses. But they're still heroes. Because we judge them because of the ways that they walk and not the goal that they achieve. By the way, like, um, there, are certain, there are other worlds that say, well, if you didn't receive personal redemption, it wasn't worth it. Or enlightenment. There is a world that celebrates reaching perfection and there's world in process process of perfection and both worlds create different types of leaders the leader of the world of a, of a religion the type that says only if we received nirvana when you're enlightened so your, your life had meaning the leader is obviously a person that actually got there right he got there he received pari nirvana. He's enlightened or he's redeemed. Depends which tradition you're talking about. And what does he say to his disciples? He said, I got there. Come to me. But in a world, not of goals, but of paths, the leaders say, I didn't get there yet. Moses didn't get there. David didn't get there. All heroes are imperfect. They didn't get there yet. They don't say, I got there. Come to me. They say, I'm walking there. Come with me. It's a different model of leadership. Moses might say, or a rabbi might say, I'm not perfect. But you know what? I might be a little bit ahead, of you, ahead in the path. Come after me, not come to me. It's two different worlds, two different paradigms, which create two different types of leaders. Ocelot.
Yeah. So, so how do you reconcile, you know, the desire to have more than 200 attendees on Shabbat, or more than 1,200? Okay. If, if there is a particular, I mean, there are leaders who do achieve okay. very finite goals. No, I would say we should always strive to grow, to be successful. The question is, is our attitude, how do we measure success? We measure success in front of our, you know, we have the perfect number, I don't know, 24,000 people attending Sudar Tishit. We have a perfect number out there. Are we speaking about a more perfect union? Meaning, I measured my success towards, where, where, where was I yesterday? And do, do, I, do I compare myself to the ideal beauty or to my beauty? To ideal ethics? Or to my process to ethics? And as a community, I'd apply that. Do I compare myself to where I was yesterday or where I should be tomorrow? And if you constantly compare yourself to where you should be tomorrow, and you don't celebrate where you were today towards where you were yesterday, you'll burn out. And that sense obviously satisfy you because this smile means you can't ever be satisfied because you're never there. You're behishtalmut, you're not the shlemut. You'll say, say shalom to each other, meaning we're not there yet. Okay? Yes? You know, what you say obviously is correct in terms of Moses and in terms of the Bible. But maybe if you spoke to Tiger Woods, he wouldn't have agreed with And maybe President Clinton wouldn't have agreed with And maybe you should become, not you perfect, but this should be their, their speech trial. No one's perfect. But people don't believe that. And people don't want to believe that. There wouldn't be loyalty. There wouldn't be malpractice. There wouldn't be the perfection of the world that we demand, although it's not possible to attack from what you said. So how, how do you address that situation in the modern world where perfection is demanded, where people both accept that people aren't perfect, that people who make who transgress according to your morals are no longer what they should be. Great, great. I think obviously we live a world that denies an imperfection is a world that denies our humanity. Yeah, and... Um, Actually, I'm sorry, I'm Israeli. And don't, don't let my accent, my accent, um, I, I fake a good accent. But I don't exactly know exactly all the stories of Tiger Woods. But I'm pretty sure he probably had at least one game where he wasn't amazing, right? I wasn't talking about that. <laughs> oh, he's talking about all the um, right. affairs. Yeah, that did get to Israel. <laughs> so, uh, what you're saying is, if we, to repair the world, also means you have to repair the, the world from its need to be perfect. And I want to say one, one, one comment about, if you go to ancient theology, Um, and this is a great, great um, observation of Karl Popper. Karl Popper, which we all know as a philosopher of science, also a philosopher of politics. He has this great, great comment about the 20th century. 20th century was our attempt to create perfect societies. Communism, fascism, Nazism. There's a common denominator. It was an attempt to create perfect societies. It was an attempt to create heaven on earth. And Karl Popper realized 
He noticed and he pointed out that every time we try to create heaven, we, find, we found ourselves in hell. Every time we try to create a perfect world, we find ourselves in a catastrophe. We try to perfect, uh, impose perfection on an imperfect world. But I think Hollywood, when it promotes you know, these perfect relationships in movies, it's not very healthy for the institution of family. We're going to tell people they're going to get married that marriage is not perfect so they won't have a panic attack once they fight. They're not meeting the model. Hollywood, you know, when everything is perfect in the world, of, in, when we see representation of the world, so we can't accept this world. And I think Karl Popper was right. The tendency, the need to impose perfection in this world is, 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 is destructive. And by the way, all the Zionists that are utopian, what was their, you know, you know ancient Zionists, they had one line, which comes, which is, which comes from Marxism. It's the following line. Brenner, you say, Olam yashan, The old world we will destroy to its foundations. Because the alternative to utopia is always catastrophe. The world is not let's destroy it and start from the beginning. And tikkun olam, I think, means two things. Think about the word, the terms tikkun olam, that has also been used too much. Think of the word, the word tikkun olam. On the one hand, it means that the olam is not mitukan. It's not a perfect world. On the other hand, it means that it could be mitukan. So it's not optimistic enough to say that the world is perfect, but it's not pessimistic enough to, this, to say that nothing can happen in this world. It's right there in the middle. Yes? You said that um, prayer is very powerful and it can um, expand your will. But at what point do you have to stop praying and... and Mm -hmm. Well, I think will always leads to action. And expressing your will always strengthens your will. Expressing your will does what water does to plants. It grows it. So it's not like I move from prayer to action. I move from will to action. And prayer is an attempt to express my will. And I really express my will. Like we all know all the... um, like an, an easy attempt, an easy experiment. What I'll do, we start speaking about food. You know, I want a falafel with hummus and some salad, and I go into details. Once you start saying those words, what happens to you? Oh, you really want a good falafel. It's language that doesn't only express my needs, it also creates needs. And if we will really pray... The more we pray for, you know, for Israel to be a greater place, the more we want it to be a greater place. But that assumes that we don't read prayers. <laughs> that assumes that we express my wills. That's another problem we have when it comes to prayer. Yes? Well, I would say 
want to encourage your community members to feel like they're partners, right? You want to break the illusion that there's, there's the leaders, there's you, and there's them. Because once they feel like there's a system and there's them, so they feel alienated. It's not, it's not, you want to break the myth that there's a system. You feel it's not you coming to show, you are the show. You own this place. And that creates a sense of responsibility. And, 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 but the question is, how can this work? Now, you can't be a partner with the people that know it all. You can't be their partner because you feel like every time you walk into a show, I feel like when I, when, when I walk into a show, you know, the worst thing that happens to you in a show is to be caught with the sidhu in the wrong page. <laughs> uh, you're trying to think. Like, you know, every, every time I feel like going to a show, everyone knows what's going on, only I'm not. Yeah. Like there's, so, there's some rabbi out there that really knows it all, and I'm just faking it. And that creates alienation. That, that creates, I'm not, I'm not a part of this. I'm an observer, I'm not a partner. Now once, it's very inviting. It's, and it creates partnership. When you say, listen, we really don't know where this show needs to go. We have ideas. And we want you as partners to be a part of our common thinking. We want you to feel that you own this place and you're not a visitor in this place. And the way to do that is to really authentically, authentically invite people to be a part of the discourse. To own it. I feel like our tradition, our tradition invites us to own the tradition in the following way. The way the Torah writes, it's not, by the way, the, the imperfect uh, uh, personalities is also reflected in imperfect writing. I'm about that, I'm serious. I'm, I'm sure many of you write. And we know one of the challenges of writing is trying to be clear. Now why, I'm now finishing a book about Maimonides, about the guy. And what frustrates me, I read, and I'm not clear enough. I want to be clear. Now, why do I want to be so clear when I write, or when I speak? Why do I want to be clear? Because I want to control the way why my readers will read me. I want them to read me the way, understand me, the way I understand myself. I want to control my readers. It's a control problem. It's interesting. The Bible, the Bible doesn't use a lot of words. The Bible and the Talmud they, they never say enough for you to understand them. Therefore, the Bible is not trying to control the way I understand it. It frees me, the Bible, the way it's, 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 it's articulated, it frees me from its control. A great observation did, done by Ilba, a, a, a researcher of, of, of literature, compares the Bible to, to, to Homeros, Odyssea, Eliade, Homer. Yeah, I, I knew it was Homer, but it sounds too much like Homer Simpson. <laughs> so Homer, yeah. So, sorry. So, there was... <laughs> no, it's perfect. So, so he compares uh, the Bible to Homer. And he says, well, when Homer describes its figures, it's filled with details. What colors were this? Hair, colors, eyes. Everything is filled with details. Can anyone tell me what the colors of the eyes of Moshe is? Or Joshua? Brown. 
on Yehuda. <laughs> okay, here's the thing. Since the Bible didn't tell us its color, and the only for us when we read, we have to imagine the figures, so who adds those details? We do. Therefore, what the Bible is inviting us to do is not only to be readers of the book, but to be writers of the book. The Bible doesn't have enough information to understand this. We don't know what happened. The discourse, the amazing, it tells us, the Bible tells us, that Abraham took his son from Be'er Sheva all the way to Jerusalem. He was supposed to slaughter him after three days. And then doesn't tell us what did they do for those three days. And it captures our imagination. If you want to fill in the blanks, we have to fill it in ourselves. The Bible is structured in a way where it doesn't invite us to analyze the text, but invites us to be a part of the text, to be continuous of the text. That is how the Bible does. It doesn't need to control how, how you understand it. Blue eyes. And by the way, that's why it's terrible when they do movies about the Bible. It's terrible. Because they block our... Once you see a movie about Moses, okay, so that's, that's Moses. What's that movie? The famous movie. Wait, The second commandment. Yeah, let's not see it anymore. Let's enable... So everyone has... Therefore, the amount of Bibles we have is the amount of readers we have of the Bible. I would say this model is a model of leadership that the Bible doesn't try to control us therefore it turns us all into not interpreters but writers of the Bible partners Judaism invites us all to be partners in the way it's right the mission of the Talmud is never clear enough to understand you have to fill in the blanks all by yourself you inject yourself into the text you're not only an alienated reader of the text and if, we can, if you can create a community where people don't just um, don't observe the action but feel like they're invited to be a part of the action that will be a tremendous achievement but the only way to do that is to transmit somehow that, that they're needed that you're imperfect that you need their help so this could be a very interesting this, I think this is the Jewish leadership create partnership through overcoming the need to sense perfection and control Yes. One of the things we discussed yesterday is the ability of the person, of a human being, to see big picture. God sees the big picture, we see only small part of the picture. To be a leader, you need to have to leave in your message and you have to have mm-hmm. passion. How do you reconcile? Well, actually, what I, what, what I tried to say is I think I opened, I, I wasn't clear today. The model I opened with. I opened it with a model and I challenged it the entire lecture. What I tried to say is that model is not a Jewish model of the know-it-all leaders that are so sure of themselves and they sweep people after them. That model is a model of leadership that is very appealing but the Bible attacks that model. I, I guess I wasn't clear enough. My entire lesson was my attempt to attack the way I opened it. The Bible tries to overcome that model, that tendency, by creating you know, to admire these stutters, <laughs> to admire these Moshe and Yoshua and Shlomo, even after they slaughter their own myth. Thank you for that. I didn't realize that, that I didn't articulate it. Thank you very much. Tim. So, I mean, we're all about trying to encourage people to grow as Jews, and you're familiar with two Jewish worlds. We're really familiar with one Jewish world. 
We talked about Judaism and Israel and Judaism here, and I think they shed a lot of light on each other. Yeah. It could help clarify our. Yeah. Well, thank thank you for that. Maybe. Rabbi, if, if it's okay, I'd like to answer that question. That'll be the last question I'm going to answer, because that's very powerful. That's the message. Are there any other questions? So I'll answer your question, then I'll go back to Rabbi. I'd like to look at a little text here. You're talking about the Bible being spare words and um, acknowledging and admiring human frailties. But then how do you explain the vast tra- uh, stretches of text in Vayikra, for example, that go into detail Great. and mind numbing? And not only go into all that detail, but even say that things must be without blemish. Mm-hmm. Literally without blemish. Now, I, I'm thinking to myself, well, when, when we're talking about human leadership and human characteristics and human behavior, we're talking about the, the way humans really are. When we're talking about, about what humans must strive for to some extent, in what they Great. do, and this is much of the much of the passages in my are mm-hmm. we should at least strive for something with approach. Okay, so, well, thank you very much for that question, because I think your question emphasizes this point. You, we, someone might say, well, you know why the Torah doesn't use details to describe Moses? The Torah is not a detailed kind of book. But we see, for each, no, the, the Torah knows how to use details when it wants. So it's interesting, it uses a lot, a lot of details to, to describe the archers of the Mikdash. Exactly how many inches and the structure, everything. So the Torah rings up and says, by the way, if I wanted to, I could use details. And when I want to control you, I control you. So the Mikdash needs to be built exactly this way. But this teaches me something. That when the Torah did describe Moses, and did describe the Akedah, it didn't do it because it's not the Torah style. It didn't do it because it decided to let go. To lose control. To invite me into it. It doesn't always invite me into it. If we invite me into every paragraph, that would have been an invitation. Yeah? When someone invites you to his house, he doesn't want you to walk into every room. That's not polite. He invites you in to feel a partner. Even after you'll invite the com- um, community to be partners, you'll still have some decisions that only you'll be making. And I think, yeah, the, the, the Bible ha- has control over the readers when it comes to particularities of rituals and of architecture. But when it comes to stories, then it lets go. We can't build any mikdash that we want. But we all have a different Moses and a different Abraham. Any other questions? Okay, so I'll, I'll conclude with the rabbi's question. This is very interesting for me, moving between worlds, between North America and Israel. It's incredibly interesting, and I find North America very, very exciting. And one of the different... I, I, it took me a long time to understand why Jews that I meet in America are so excited about being Jews. It's like so amazing. I'm Jewish. This is so amazing. And Israelis? Yeah, I'm Jewish. It has everything to do... You know, there is experiments that made up people in elevators. You know, the favorites that psychologists love. Are there psychologists here? So I won't use too many jokes. <laughs> So when there's 12 people in the elevator and 11 are men and one is a woman, you ask her, what are you? She'll say, I'm a woman. 
again, 12 women in an elevator. 11 lawyers, one's a doctor. You ask her, what are you? She's not a woman anymore. What is she now? I'm a doctor. 12 doctors in an elevator. And one doctor is, is uh, I, I only know these terms in Hebrew. Afos and Golan. Yeah? Okay. And the other one is a um, Menatech? Surgeon. Surgeon? Surgeon? she's not a doctor anymore. She's a surgeon. We, we, how do we know who we are? Where, how are we aware of who we are? Because we know who we aren't. There's a problem. In any elevator in Tel Aviv, you only, you're always with Jews in the elevator. <laughs> I'm never Jewish. I feel so Jewish when I come to North America. I, I, now no one feels Jewish in the room. Now we're, you know, every, but you go outside, you're so Jewish. In Israel, Judaism is trivialized. It's trivialized. And therefore, Judaism can't be exciting in Israel. Furthermore, but that's what's great about Israel. This is what's amazing about Israel, that it's so trivialized to be a Jew. See, in, in, in North America, if this research is right, and it always, they always change it, but let's say if we have about 50% of assimilation, right? That, is that about right? A little bit more than 50%. So now the chief rabbi of England once put it, in North America, you're not the chosen people anymore. You're the choosing people. With 50% assimilation rates, that means that you have to choose every day to be a Jew. And if you don't choose to be a Jew, you won't be a Jew anymore. If you don't invest time and energy and money in being a Jew, you'll lose your Judaism. And Israel were the chosen people, meaning that we don't have to choose. The identity is imposed on us. No matter what I will do, my, my children will marry a Jew. I'll still be a Jew. And the great advantage of Israel is that, the, that Judaism is not under threat. There's no assimilation. This is the great advantage of Israel, but it's also the great disadvantage of Israel. Because it's so guaranteed. It's taken for granted and trivialized. The advantage of America, that Judaism is not guaranteed, it's also its disadvantage, which creates the following world. In North America, Judaism is not guaranteed. Therefore exciting. In Israel, it is guaranteed. Therefore less exciting. This is, this is, and, and, and we need a very serious dialogue between Americans and Israelis. And I want to tell you, and I want to conclude with, I don't know how much time we have, Wes, I'm just guessing. I guess ten, I guess a few more minutes. The second Lebanon on war, I was, you see, I could say whatever I want about my life, in the end of the day I'm still in the army. You know that. I'm, I'm I was four years in the army, and I'm still in reserves. And the army can call me whenever he wants. And the second Lebanon war broke out when I was with my wife in Geneva, and we were about to go on a great hike in the Alps. And we land in Geneva Thursday, we planned to go on a hike, we were planning for half a year. On Sunday, and we, we, we were Shomer Shabbat. So right after Shabbat, my wife starts packing. And then I do a terrible mistake. I open my cell phone and I listen to messages. Now here's Sergio. My wife is packing. She loves packing. <laughs> I open my cell phone and it says, 
יש לך 96 הודעות חדשות. You have 96 new messages. Message number one, הופעל גיוס חירום. הופעל גיוס חירום. There's a machine talking to you, you're recruited to the army. You're recruited to the army. Message number two, you're recruited to the army. You're recruited to the army. Message number three, you're recruited to the army. Message number four, מיכה, איפה אתה? Where are you? כולם כבר... It's my, my commander. I'm a MMP, means I have 40 soldiers, and I have a Magad that, that's on this soldier. So, everyone is here already. Where are you? Message number five. Michal Zahsaman, my sergeant. Message number six. You recruited to the army. The machine's back. So I'm listening to all this. My wife's packing. She loves packing. I'm listening to them and I have that moment what do you do now? that moment of a real Israeli dilemma what do you do now? so I tell my wife listen I don't know how to tell you this but I don't know what and she looked in my eyes and she saw in my eyes that there's, it's only a fake dilemma there's no real dilemma I leave my wife in Geneva I find the first plane I get on the plane I go back to Israel And I feel like such a hero. I say to myself, someday people are going to be telling stories about me. <laughs> By the way, since then, the only person telling stories about me is myself. <laughs> oh, and that's because my wife doesn't talk to me anymore. <laughs> so I make it to Israel, and I go up to the Golan Heights, and the Golan Heights, that's where all my soldiers were. That means we didn't see any action, because we were the ones posted in front of Syria. Therefore, if the Syrians were attacked, they'd see us, and believe me, <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good thing they didn't attack. <laughs> and I see my soldiers, and I see one of my soldiers is the kind of guy that, you know what an is? It's a certain type of an Israeli. A, and the kind of guy, he left his girlfriend in the south, in the beaches of south of France. He left her there, and he came home. Another soldier of mine, was horseback riding with his girlfriend in Mongolia. He, he literally left his girlfriend on a horse in Mongolia and came back to Israel. Suddenly it hit me, my story is not unique. And these people, these people don't give lectures around the world about Zionism and Israel and philosophy. These people are simple Israelis. And when I realized that my story is not unique, that's the moment I realized how our story is so unique. I couldn't believe it. And I make a phone call to a good friend of mine, Eduardo, a businessman from Ramat HaSharon. He said to me, listen, Micha, I can't talk to you now because there's a family from Nahariya that fled, you know, Nahariya is up, up north, that left their house, Nahariya, and I'm hosting them in my house, and there's, a, there's literally a line to the bathroom every day. This is another story not told by the Second Lebanon War, not told about Israelis. Tens of thousands of families in Israel hosted anonymous families that fled up north. I make another phone call. I'm sure you know families that did that, right? That hoaxed families that they didn't know. You see, by definition, family, a good definition is, families is, is a place where you can always knock on the door and no matter what, they'll let you in. In the second Lebanon war, really, really, the entire nation was one family. That's it. I call Ein Platz, the place I run that promotes new type of leadership in Israel, Ein Platz. I, try to, I want to speak to people. No one's there. There's 240 students. No one's there. They are all either in Miluim, they're either recruited, or they're volunteering 
up north in bomb shelters. This is another untold, untold story about Israeli society. In the second Lebanon war, thousands of volunteers went up north and volunteered in the bomb shelters. I say this because we're used to complaining so much about Israel and as I said before, self-criticism is a national sport in Israel and the Second Lebanon War took that to its peak. The army screwed up, the generals don't know, the politicians don't understand. That's one narrative. There's another narrative. Maybe the system didn't work. The spontaneous forces of Israeli society were never so amazing. That war probably tells a great story about the Israeli society. That war where we thought we met the worst first, the worst face of Israel, that's also the war where we met the best face of Israel. We met the greatest version of the Israeli, the same place where we met the worst version of Israeli. There's always two narratives. My problem is, we always tell only one narrative. The narrative of all the problems and all the this. An imperfect world always has two narratives. A perfect world, if it's not perfect, it's terrible. An imperfect world means there's always two narratives. And we need to promote the second narrative of beautiful Israel. Of the guy who left, see, about how Israelis are, when the going gets tough, we realize that there's a generation of young Israelis out there that are so amazing, and the system maybe might be rotten, but the spontaneous forces are amazing, and maybe, and and there's a great, great promise in Israel today. I'm telling you all this story to get to the following point. We were in the Golan Heights for three weeks. Didn't see any real action. But a lot of time to talk. And suddenly, many, many packages started coming in. Packages after packages that people sent for soldiers. And you see, did you guys send any packages? Yeah? The nursery school. Well, tell them next time you want more chocolate chip cookies. Okay. Okay. We need, cho- well, next time, chocolate chip cookies. So, so, so all the packages that didn't, didn't go into Lebanon, because they can't go into Lebanon, so all the packages came to me. So I'm sitting on a mountain of packages, and for three weeks, bored soldiers are opening packages. And they opened one package, where is it from? Rishon Metzir. Another package, Akko. Another package, Tzfak, Tzferia, Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim. So many from Jerusalem. Suddenly, one soldier of mine opens a package. This is from Vermont. <laughs> another package is from Palm Beach, in, down in where it's warm. Another package in New Jersey. I'm sure there were many from Massachusetts. And they don't understand why are they getting packages from Vermont? And they don't... Why? And that was the moment I got it. I got that they don't get it. So I told them, listen, you think you're fighting for Rishon and Zion and Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and Akwa and Tzfat and Tferia and Jerusalem and Jerusalem. But when we're fighting here, the entire Jewish world is rooting for us. That's these packages. We're fighting for them too. On the bleachers, they're sitting and they're watching and they're rooting for us. And you have to, and that's the moment, many of them, those packages, they transform from being Israelis to being Jews. Because that's the moment they understood that their community, their community of solidarity, is broader than the community of Israelis. It contains 
all the Jews in the world. Tell then, Israelis, there's also assimilation in Israel. Assimilation in Israel is not from being a Jew to America, it's being from Jew just being an Israeli. And I always thought that the greatest way to block assimilation in Israel is connect them to great texts and inspire them from our text that it works, by the way. But there's also something else. Connect them to Jews that aren't Israelis. I mean, you realize that they are, they're also your brothers. That you can rely on them because they send you packages. And no, no, I'm serious. The world jury the, the is sending packages all the time. Packages through support, through advice, and through donations. Those packages come with the big story that our community of solidarity is greater than the community of the Israelis. It's a community of all the Jews. By the way, I believe in reverse birthright. Of being Israelis to being American Jews. In order to realize, to have the package effect that I had in the Golan Heights. To realize that they are Jews. And this discourse between two communities is essential for both communities. The communities where Judaism is, is at risk because of assimilation and therefore exciting. And the community where Judaism is guaranteed and therefore less exciting. And the Americans need Israel to guarantee that the Jews will stay a people. Israel needs North American Jews to guarantee that those people will stay Jewish. And this is a discourse that you asked, we live in different worlds. The more these worlds will be connected, this discourse is very, very important to strengthen both of our Jewish identities and to block both processes of assimilation and to make Jews, Judaism more exciting in both places. It won't be perfect in the end. We'll be in a process of perfection. Shalom. Thank you for your Torah, and uh, the only appropriate way to end really is for all of us to uh, say Kaddish Rabbanan together, page 71, as we rise. Page 71. It kadav, it kadash merava, v'yalma divra chirute v'yamlich machute, v'chayechon v'yomechon v'chayei dacho b'et Yisrael, v'agalau v'zman kari v'imru, amen. Yeish merava mvorach v'yalam l'omei omaya, Yitborach v'yishtabach v'yitboar v'yitromam v'yitnaseh v'yiradar v'yiraleh v'yiralal sh'mei d'kudishah b'richu Leila minkol b'rchata v'shirata tushbuchata v'nechamata d'amiram v'yomah v'yimru amen Ay Yisrael v'yarabanan v'yal tamidehan v'yal kol tamideh tamidehan v'yal kol mandi askin b'yoraita Diviatra hadein v'dibachol atar v'atar Yehei lahon lahon shalom raba China v'chisla v'rachamin v'chayin arifin Zona ravicha U'furkana min karama v'hon divishmaya v'yimru amen Yehei shalom raba min shamaya V'chayin tovim aleinu v'yakho yisrael v'yimru amen Ose shalom b'mromov Hu v'rachma v'yase shalom I want to thank you and I want to thank my colleagues for being here and I want to just give you one second of spiritual homework because we have 
God loves meetings, another board meeting tomorrow night. So the board meeting I want you to just think about, and we'll pick up, is what Micha says, consistent with, or a departure from, inconsistent with, what we learned from Ron Heifetz in Leadership on the Line. Right? Those, those two Torahs, do they work together, or they work in tension, and what do the two of them together teach us? Lala Tov, see you tomorrow night.